Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, I must say that 2020 let us down this week. The most 2020-ish outcome to this election would have been for the Libertarian to win. And that didn't happen. Or maybe this guy. Not that guy, that guy. Brian Carroll was literally a, a, an official write-in candidate for this election. And so, so uh, I wish he were a little more handsome. Um, I, I, saw, I saw my name on the list, and I was talking to the poll worker about my name being on the list, and then I realized that I was probably campaigning and that I might get thrown out if I didn't stop, and so I decided I needed to quit having this conversation with the poll worker. Uh, I think he only got like 4,000 votes, which is kind of sad. Um, so I guess technically the election is still undecided since Biden was uh, declared uh, the winner by the media. It was a projection. No official uh, votes have been certified. Of course, this week the courts will really bring some clarity to the election, which is exactly how we want our elections decided, in the court, right? Um, so regardless of what transpires or how it transpires, Christians, I've got good news for you. Your kingdom is not of this world, and your king really isn't worried about counting votes. Uh, however, one of the realities that we have to face as Christians is, is this. We ultimately understand that we have dual citizenship. Uh, our, our hearts and minds in this world are increasingly compelled towards the kingdom of God as we continue to see problems unfold in this world, but we need to remember that we still dwell in a nation uh, and dwell in nations of men. And we owe loyalty to both except for when loyalty to our nation conflicts with our loyalty to the kingdom of God. One of the ways that we show loyalty to our nation is by participating in the civic processes like voting. We pay our taxes. We follow the laws, even the ones that are inconvenient, like those white signs with black letters on the side of the road. I know that sometimes we like to disobey those laws, but we, we try to follow those laws as well. We certainly pray for our leaders, and I hope that as a church, that regardless of the outcome of the current election, that we will covenant together to pray for our president, regardless of what, uh, what color, uh, blue or red, he claims to um, adhere to. Every morning, children gather at their schools, and I assume that they still recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, I don't think that's changed in, in, the, uh, in the civilization that we find ourselves in today. But what's interesting about the Pledge of Allegiance is, is that it didn't start with, its, with what we currently have today. It didn't begin with, I pledge allegiance to the flag. The very first iteration of the pledge was actually written by a Civil War, general, or a Civil War veteran in 1885, Colonel George Balch. His pledge was this, We give our heads and our hearts to God and our country, one country, one language, one flag. I kind of like what he had to say. That's a that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good statement of of um, of of loyalty to to a nation. However, in 1892, his pledge was overtaken by an oath written by a Baptist preacher. Right, that's good. Baptist preacher gave us the pledge of allegiance. Uh, it was drafted in conjunction with the 400th anniversary of Columbus' voyage to the New World. And Bellamy's pledge said this, I pledge allegiance to my flag 
and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That was the Pledge of Allegiance as written by Francis Bellamy in a celebration of Columbus' 400th year anniversary. Now, Bellamy's pledge stood unchanged for decades. In 1924, the pledge was altered to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. During the course of World War II, uh, another slight change was made to the pledge. The Bellamy salute, prior to World War II, if you said the pledge, you did not do this, you did this. That kind of rubbed people the wrong way in World War II. I don't know why. And so instead of an outstretched right arm to the flag, the Congress said the pledge should be said with hand over heart instead of the Nazi salute. The final change was made in 1954 by President Eisenhower. You'll notice that two words were missing from the Baptist preacher's pledge, uh, and Eisenhower encouraged those words be added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Bellamy believed as a Baptist preacher in the absolute separation of church and state, and therefore he did not include the words under God in his pledge to the flag. However, Eisenhower, recognizing the threat of communism and secularism, urged Congress to amend the oath, resulting in the 31-word pledge that we recite today. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. Notice there's no comma there. Uh, it's one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'm honestly shocked that the Pledge of Allegiance has survived as long as it has. I suspect it's one of these things where if people began to, to dissect the pledge and its history, that it probably would not stand in this strange world in which we live today. First of all, it was written by a Baptist preacher. And so everybody who is not a Baptist or everybody who's an atheist or everybody who's not a Christian is offended because it was written by somebody who affirms some sort of relationship with God. Uh, for those who research a little bit further, they realize that Bellamy was not just a Baptist preacher, he was a socialist and believed in, in full-blown socialism. He actually lost his pulpit in Boston because he preached against the evils of capitalism and he was forced out of the pulpit. He taught that Jesus was a socialist and so ultimately Bellamy stopped preaching altogether because his social gospel did not line up with the teaching of the church. And then, of course, we have the terribly offensive idea that we are one nation under God, which is expressed in the pledge. And so, I don't know, we could probably take guesses on how much longer the Pledge of Allegiance has to live in our day and time, but I suspect that its demise will come sooner than later. We are citizens not just of earth, though. We are citizens of heaven, and as citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to recognize that we do not have an official pledge by which we declare our allegiance. Even at Vacation Bible School, when we stand children up and we do the pledge to the flag, the pledge to the Christian flag, and the pledge to the Bible, that none of those pledges are contained in the Word of God. They are words put together by men to try to uh, conceptualize that which we believe. We understand throughout history the church has written creeds that have summarized our beliefs. As Baptists, we affirm the Baptist faith and message, which is an attempt to, to summarize those things which we hold dear. However, we understand that our creed, our pledge, is the Word of God, and we believe it is truth without any mixture of error. We also need to understand that our loyalty to the kingdom of God is more than just words and our ability to recite an oath. 
It'd be real simple if that's all it took. In order to get into heaven, all you got to do is get up every day and put your hand over your heart and recite an oath. I mean, everybody get to heaven then because uh, it doesn't cost anything. There's no pain involved. It doesn't hurt. If all you had to do to get into heaven was stand up, put your hand over your heart, and recite an oath, then what would it cost you? We understand, though, that our loyalty to the kingdom of God is not made known by our ability to keep an oath, but it's made manifest in our actions and in our motives. Our loyalty to the king is made known by how we actually live our lives, not simply by raising our hands to a red, white, and blue banner. The Sermon on the Mount is moving into a new section of teaching as we've worked through this. And, and it's, a, it's a kind of pledge of allegiance, if you will, a, a portrait of what true loyalty to the kingdom of God looks like, a, a picture of what true dedication to the King of Kings actually resembles. So this morning, let us turn our attention to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. I would invite you as we read these words to stand with me. Jesus continuing his sermon, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God, I'm grateful for these words. May we be reminded of our pledge of loyalty to the King and our devotion to the kingdom of God. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, speak through your word and speak through your servant today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. We could take these sections in these verses and break them down into much smaller sections, but I wanted to combine them today because I believe that, that all of these verses point to a, a greater theme that we should consider this morning as citizens of the kingdom of God. I believe there's metaphors that Jesus gives us here that helps to define for us what true dedication looks like in the kingdom of God. We, we need to remember that life in the kingdom of God is, is not about checking behavior boxes. I think for too many times, and, and this starts very early in, in our discipleship process, that we, we boil 
the Christian life down to a set of behaviors. That if I can do these things, if I can check these boxes, then I'm a good person, I'm a good Christian, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But being a citizen in the kingdom of God is more than just being able to check good behavior boxes. The fact of the matter is, is that being a citizen in the kingdom of God means reorienting the entirety of our lives around a set of norms and a set of ideals. It's, it's not about our ability to be good. It's not about our ability to check the boxes and, and make sure that our behavior is consistent with what the Bible says. It really is about reorienting the totality of our existence around what this means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a citizen of the kingdom is more than just about coming to church on Sunday. It's more than just singing the songs. It's more than just listening to the sermon. It's more than just putting something in the offering plate. It's more than those things. It's more than just about praying. It's more than just about fasting. It's more than all those things put together. Because we understand, as Jesus told us back in chapter 5, verse 20, if our righteousness is truly, truly going to pass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, then there cannot be one part of our life that goes untouched by the cleansing power of the gospel. And so here, Jesus gives us these metaphors to help us understand what true loyalty to the kingdom of God looks like. The first thing that we, we receive here is, is that the kingdom demands loyalty with our treasures. Now, at first glance, this sounds like Jesus is wanting to rummage through our bank accounts again. He's good at that. He does it a lot. He asks us where we, how we spend, where we spend our money. That, of course, Jesus wants to, to see those things. But, but there's more to this because the idea of treasures is far more encompassing than our money. The, the idea of treasures is, is far more than our financial portfolio, far more than the square footage of our home, far more than the size of our 401k. What Jesus is actually challenging us here to do is to prioritize the treasure in our lives. Now, for some of us, that, of course, is our financial well-being. We live our whole lives amassing for ourselves wealth and prosperity. We, we strive for financial stability. Financial well-being is our primary objective. Ask a young college student what their goal is, and they, they may say, my goal is to make a lot of money and retire comfortably. That, that a healthy 401k is the greatest goal that we have. But let's be honest. If, if money is the only treasure we possess, we live a pretty empty life. If money is the only thing that we treasure, then, then, then I don't necessarily want to be friends with you if that's the sole purpose of your existence because you're going to be a pretty boring person. Again, Jesus here is not giving us a prohibition against saving or investing or, or, or providing for our families. What Jesus is doing is he's getting to the, the heartbeat behind our actions. He's asking us to evaluate our motives about why we do what we do, why we prioritize the things that we prioritize. A story was told of a, of a wealthy old man who was on his deathbed. And when he realized that his time drew near, he called together his pastor his doctor, and his attorney. And he looked at those three men who were there by the deathbed, and he gave each of them an envelope, and in the envelope it contained $30,000 in cash. 
And the man looked at those three men and said, said, I've been told that I can't take my wealth with me, but I'm going to try and I need you to help me. And so he told those men, he said, I need you to take this envelope and at my funeral, once they lower my casket into the grave, I want you to take the envelope and throw the envelope and its contents into the grave as they begin to cover my casket with dirt. Well, the day of his death came, and the funeral occurred, and the three men stood as the casket was lowered into the hole, and each of them threw their envelope into the hole. After the funeral and after the grave had been covered, the men circled up, and the pastor, being a righteous man, looked at the other three, and he said, gentlemen, I have a confession to make. He said, when I realized that there was $30,000 cash in the envelope and the church needed a new roof, I kept $10,000 out and threw the other 20 in. The doctor looked at the other ones and said, I too have a confession to make. He said, when I realized that there was cash in the envelope, I kept $20,000 out in order to expand my clinic. Well, the lawyer looked at those other men aghast. He said, you guys are repulsive. He said, I included a personal check for the entire amount and threw it in the hole. King Solomon helps to place all of this into proper perspective for us. King Solomon was the smartest, richest, most powerful man that you could ever imagine. And he wrote about this, his life in the book of Ecclesiastes. He had ultimate power to amass for himself anything of value, anything of worth. He had anything you could possibly treasure. And he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9, he says, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found, found pleasure in all my toil, and, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon didn't say it didn't have worth. He said it was vanity. What does he mean that it was transient, that it didn't last? All the treasures, all the wealth, all the pleasure did not endure. It was striving after the wind. When Jesus tells us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth because of the destructive tendencies of this earth, he is reminding us that we aren't to be consumed with these transient treasures. In verse 21, he says this very clearly, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to understand this this morning. What we treasure will ultimately govern our lives. What we treasure will ultimately govern our lives. D.A. Carson said this, he says, we think about our treasures and we are drawn towards our treasures. We fret about our treasures. We measure other things and other people by our treasures. 
This is so painfully true that a person who honestly examines himself can pretty well discover what his real treasures are simply by studying his deepest desires. You see, our allegiance to the kingdom of God, our allegiance to the king, will always be suspect as long as our hearts are inclined to the treasures of this life. The, the second metaphor that Jesus uses, it's a little more complicated. It's a little more challenging to understand, but, but the kingdom of God asks us to be if, ask for our allegiance with our eyes as well. In the context of Jesus' sermon here, we're, we're able to, to sort of understand what he's talking about. In the previous verses, Jesus is talking about that which drives us and that which, which motivates us. But now he shifts into this, this full-blown metaphor of eyes and lightness. To understand Jesus' meaning here, it helps us to be reminded about the function of an eyeball. Now, I don't know about you, but I literally depend on my eyes for everything. The only thing I don't depend on my eyes for is, is sleeping. But getting to the bed and in into bed, I need my eyes to even get there. And they're also helpful for me when it's time to no longer be sleeping so that I can begin my day. Now, I certainly understand that there are people who are legally blind and who are blind and who manage to live full and satisfying and, 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 and fulfilled lives. However, for those of us who have our sight, if our sight were suddenly to be taken from us, our lives would be dramatically altered. I can't imagine what that would be like. Even someone who has cataracts as the eye begins to cloud, uh, the, the effect that it has on our well-being and on our, on our, on our quality of life is, is dramatic. Even your ability to walk through your home would be dramatically altered. Our, our little dog is starting to have vision troubles, and I realized how significant his vision troubles were the other day and that there was a chair that was pulled out from our dining room table. And when he came around the corner of the table to try to find me, he did not see the chair that was normally pushed in, and this time it was pulled out just a little bit, and he ran smack into the chair. And he kind of stood back and shook it off and realized that there was a, a chair that was there in the way. Imagine if someone blindfolded you and rearranged all your furniture in your home. It'd be a terrible, terrible day. So Jesus uses this metaphor to help us understand loyalty in the kingdom of God. He says here that if your eye is sound, then your body is filled with light. If your eyes are bad, then you are going to walk in darkness. And again, this, this idea of spiritual truth is being conveyed to us here. Frequently in the scriptures, the eye is equivalent to the heart. And so when we're told in the Bible to set your heart on something, it, it means the same thing as to fix your eyes on something. It means the same thing. So therefore, when we fix our eyes on something, we are being driven by something. Something is motivating us. Just like where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we fix our eyes on something, that is what drives us and that is what motivates us. And so again, Jesus is asking us about our allegiance to the kingdom of God. Have we set our eyes on the things of God? The consequences of having a kingdom-focused vision is that the whole person is filled with light. Again, 
we're in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This harkens us back when Jesus describes us as the light of the world. When you are filled with light and you're around others who are filled with light, then that light is going to spill out. It has no choice. It has no options. You, you can't hide it. That's a powerful picture. Imagine being around a group of people whose singular focus is on the kingdom of God. That should be what the church is like. When the church gathers together, it is filled with people whose singular focus in obedience to Christ is, is, is the kingdom of God. It's not always the case, though. Listen to the warning that Jesus gives in verse 23. He says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, that's a confusing statement. How can light be dark? Ultimately, this points to the person who has deceived him or herself into thinking that their vision is good when their vision is ultimately bad. I, I fear that much of our American church has stumbled into this. Far too many Christians today have convinced themselves that their nominal loyalty to kingdom values is deep and genuine when in fact it is nothing but shallow and contrived. And Jesus says that the person's darkness is the greatest who believes that their darkness is light. Allegiance to the kingdom of God. Verse 24 provides a summary statement in the sense that this, that the kingdom ultimately and finally demands our undivided attention look at verse 24 again no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money again surface reading this sounds like it's a it's a money warning but the fact of the matter is is it's more than a money warning this is a, a summary statement that demands our radical allegiance to the kingdom of God, and it asks a simple question, who are you going to serve? And this is in the context of, of slavery. So, so let's, let's be clear with this, that, that you might be able to work two jobs. You might be able to, to, to pull for two football teams. But when it comes to being a slave, you can't be a slave to two masters. Jesus is very clear here. I think some people read this and they are put off by the radical demand that Christ is making. Folks, he wants all of you, not just a portion of you. He wants your radical allegiance to him, not just a little bit. He wants it all. Pastor, that's a big ask. Every bit of me? He wants my motives, my heart, my plans, my desires. He wants everything about me. If he wants that much of me, how can I go after those things that I enjoy so much? But it's true. Jesus wants 100% of your attention. 
He wants 100% of your devotion. Because you can't serve two masters. Well, what happens when we give Christ everything? 100% access. Nothing held back. It all belongs to him. We see what happens is we become that salt and light to those things around us. Show me a husband and wife with total devotion to Christ, and I'll show you a marriage that's fail-safe. Show me a mother and a father with, with total devotion to Christ, and I'll show you children who know they are loved and cared for and nurtured. Show me an employee with total devotion to Christ, and I'll show you someone with a remarkable work ethic, a person of absolute integrity, a person that I couldn't imagine not having on my team. Show me a politician with a total devotion to Christ. And I'll show you someone that isn't thirsty for power and who has no agenda beyond serving the public. That's the kingdom. And that's the character of kingdom citizens. And, and what's incredible about this is it is an incredibly subversive call. It wants us all total allegiance to the king. But that doesn't create a, a community of people who are hermits, who stay away from the, the world, who are keep to themselves. It doesn't create a, a community of, of, of closed-off, closed-minded people. You see, when we give our total allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it creates a community of godly people who love the Lord, but who also love the people in the world. And not just the people who look like them and think like them and act like them, but love the people who, who, who on surface level even look to be our enemies. I'm convinced that if we want to see our world change, that if we want to see our nation change, then we need all these members of all these churches to give their undivided attention to the King of Kings. Then and only then will the church become an agent for change, a place of true revival. So Jesus demands a hard question be asked of each one of us today. Where is your allegiance today? Where is your allegiance today? What masters are calling for your submission? What masters are, are beckoning for your attention? Is money a master? Is your happiness a master? Is your career a master? Are your children masters? Jesus is clear. 
You cannot serve these masters and serve God. But later on, Jesus would say this. In describing our allegiance, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things which are important to us, which are good for us, which are helpful for us, all these things will be added unto you. Would you pray with me, please? God, we are grateful for your words, as difficult as they are for us and as challenging as they are for us in this day. God, we pray that you will help us to understand the call to total allegiance, that we will not be pulled in multiple directions. But God, help us to rejoice in the fact that if we are sold out to the king, <laughs> we're going to have better marriages, we're going have stronger families, we're going to have healthier workplaces, and healthier schools. If, if Christians would simply recognize that our allegiance to the King of Kings will enhance everything that's good about our lives. God, what a better place we'd be in. But God, we understand that in the room and those watching at home, that there are so many different things beckoning for our attention. There are things that we know are are in dynamic contrast to the things of God that are calling our name. There are masters that are not of God that are calling for our attention. So God, on this day, in this place, May we have the humility to reject these earthly masters and to surrender ourselves completely and totally to the King. 100% allegiance. No treasures but Christ alone. Nothing to cloud our vision but the clear vision of the Lord Jesus. No masters but Christ. God, I believe if we'll do that, we'll change the world. We'll certainly change our churches. And there'll be no doubt who your disciples really are. Lord, in these coming moments, would you speak to our hearts and bring our hearts into alignment with the kingdom and the values of the kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.